Good morning and welcome to We Are Just Christians. Thanks for tuning in today to the show. We're really glad that you can be with us today. And We Are Just Christians will be on for the next hour here on WPSL. My name is Mike Schmidt. I'm one of the elders and the preacher for the Church of Christ on Savona Boulevard, as you just heard. And with me, as usual, is Gary Jones. How you doing, Gary? I'm doing well this this, this morning, Mike. This morning. Well, Sorry. <laughs> uh, the reason that's a problem is because normally this is a live show, but um, I have a speaking engagement uh, outside of Atlanta today, and so we take this show earlier in the week. So this is a recording, and we are not going to be live, and so we're not going to be able to take your phone calls. I'm not going to give you the number to call the station. I will give you the text numbers in just a moment, though, where you can reach us by text uh, during the show if we're live, or e- even this morning or any other time, you can text Gary and I with comments or questions, and people do. We really appreciate that. And I'll give you some other ways you can reach We Are Just Christians in just a moment. If you'd like to text the show, you can text Mike at 772-260-6120, 772-260-6120. If you'd like to text Gary, you can reach him at 772-260-6220, 260-6220 is his number. And of course, there's a couple of other ways you can listen to this show besides live on Sunday morning on WPSL on your radio. Now that we have the way by, um, by through the internet, you can go to WPSL.com and click the listen now button or listen live button and it will take you right to the show when we're on the air. You can also find us on uh, iRadio, I think it is. Now I forgot which one it is. I think it's iRadio. Uh, you can find this sh- this show on there as well as from our website, which is just Christians, we are just Christians, excuse me, we are just Christians is the website.com, and you can find podcasts of this show. So there's and, several and ways you can, to get a hold of us. You can find sermons too. You can sermons find sermons searchable by subject. In fact, I, I would want to point a couple people to a, two or three sermons uh, in, in recent months that you might be interested in because of the current topics. But in particular, I think uh, a couple weeks ago, first part, the middle to first part of June, I spoke on all men are created equal, two lessons on that. You may agree or disagree with some of the points I made. I, I got a little feedback, you know, positive, and I don't know about too much negative, but that's, you know, sometimes you're preaching to the choir. But I would invite any of, the, uh, of you all to listen to those sermons and give us some feedback on that, positive or negative, on those sermons. All men are created equal, then they, you'll find those on wearejustchristians.com. And there's some others that you might find interesting in the light of some of the current issues. I did some sermons last fall on the Bible and the Constitution, comparing some of the legal principles found in the Old Testament and in the New with some of the principles found in the U.S. Constitution, other state governments, pro and con. You might well, find that interesting to Mike, look at. A lot of our laws are based on the Old Testament law, right? And that was kind of the point of a lot yeah. of the sermon, uh, and and where and some things people are calling for today are not. But but you can then think about that. If I, I don't expect everyone to agree with everything that's there, in fact, I might disagree with myself in a year. But you can certainly give you something to think about and lots of scriptures to take a look at. That's at wearejustchristians.com. Well, as I mentioned, we're not live today. But uh, you may text us and talk. we'll converse with you through text and maybe even use that material on a show without using your name if you'd like. 
we certainly are welcome to that. You can also reach this show by email at justchristiansatatt.net. Well, enough of that. We've spent parts of a couple of weeks going over some things that Gary had in mind with regard to Old Testament prophecy and its application to us today, in particular, what it, how it relates to the church and the church age. And, and of course, mixing in phone calls and texts and things like that, uh, we haven't, he hasn't finished, been able to finish that. So I thought for the first part of the show today, or we, we thought that he would go over some of that and we'll talk about it. And then we may move on to some other subjects. So what's on your mind, Gary? How do you, what do you want, what's your point, what's the point you're making about this okay. and lead us into what you want to say? Well, I want to go back over the real purpose in this is the fact that, you know, you and I talked some time before about this idea of premillennialism and Christ coming back to establish an earthly kingdom on this earth and rule in Jerusalem. And, and you and I both, uh, I think, agree that this is just not something that we find in Scripture. Uh, you, you've got right, the, a relatively recent doctrine from the 1800s brought right. forth into the 2000s. And so two points that I wanted to make about this is one that the that basically the church is spoken of in the Old Testament and prophet, particularly uh, Jeremiah, uh, Isaiah, uh, Zechariah, just, just to mention a few, it's even, even others. I, I don't want to limit it to that. The church is spoken of in the Old Testament prophets, but not in the way that it's ex- explicitly spoken of in the New Testament. And the second point is to understand this and to recognize those prophecies for what they are, we have to think about the Old Testament prophecies in a little bit different manner than we do and, and give them a little bit different kind of thought uh, in the sense that we have to compare them and understand what they're trying to say because in, in most of this and just about all of this, the language leading us to the church is highly symbolic. Yes. It, it's not literal, okay? It, it, it uses Old Testament terms in a literal sense, but they symbolize other things. And so we have to learn to be able to recognize those I things. I was filled with metaphorical, symbolic, allegorical mm-hmm. language. Yes. Apocalyptic. There are several different kinds and, of it. Yeah, and we could spend the whole show just in talking about what different kinds there are and, and looking at some examples. And the thing is, Gary, in, in, over the years, I've seen some people's minds are easily, some people allegorize everything, and so they don't take anything specifically. Other people can't get the concept of, of the, a metaphor at all, and right. therefore they, they struggle with the Bible because it's filled with parables and figures and meanings and symbols. And there's a combination of both. And so to be able to discern when he's saying something literal and when he's, I mean, concrete that's all, right. or whether he's speaking in, a, in an allegory or a metaphor is, a, is something we have to work at. And, and, and I just wanted to, to point out a couple of things, and these are not the only things that in some of these prophecies trigger us to think about them in terms of a symbol or what the actual meaning is and that it's not literal. And we've talked about it a little bit, so some of this is going to be kind of boring review until we get it get to uh, some of the newer things, but we brought up Jeremiah 31, and I'm not 31, 31 through 34, and I'm not going to read all that again, but basically Jeremiah the prophet speaks for the Lord, and the Lord says he's going to make a new covenant with Israel, and it's not going to be the same kind of covenant that he made uh, at Mount Zion uh, with with the Moses and the Mosaic law and the children of Israel, uh, the descendants of Abraham, in a literal sense, because that was a very literal covenant. It was a physical covenant. It was a literal nation upon this earth 
that used that law as their governing documents. And I believe that's what the Bible uh, tells us, and that's what God intended for it to be. But now he says, I'm going to do something different in Jeremiah 31, 31. He says, in that old covenant, you didn't have to teach everybody to know the Lord because our, basically in that old covenant, you did have to teach everybody to know the Lord because you were born into it, ignorant of the Lord, and you had to be taught of him. And he says, in this new one, it's not going to be that way. In this new covenant, everybody's already going to know the Lord. So what does that imply to us, Mike? That implies basically you come to him through knowledge of him that we see, and basically in that covenant, there's not going to be anyone that doesn't know the Lord. Right. So with that in mind, when we look at some passages, and, and we spoke about these passages earlier, uh, I think I read Zechariah 14, 20, and 21, uh, which is generally considered even by most scholars to be a messianic passage. I don't think they see this as something that's not messianic, but it points out some key things that we need to look at and, and learn to recognize. In Zechariah 14, 20, and 21, it says, In that day holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses, and the pots in the Lord's houses shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. And in that day there shall be no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Now let's just contrast that to what that Old Testament covenant was. Not, Mike, I don't believe every pot and every body in Jerusalem and the Old Testament law was a priest and was sanctified and holy to the Lord. Or could go well, in into fact, the temple. In fact, that's what he's saying. It wasn't. It wasn't. So, so, he, this so he's saying now there's going to be a that. day when that is the case. And in that case, there's no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord. In other words, there can't be anybody in the kingdom that does not know the Lord. And, you know, basically, Mike, that says to me, this is not physical. Because a physical nation, you know, as much as we guard our borders, how do we keep non-citizens out that aren't supposed to be here? We essentially don't. We can't. It's, it's, it's ineffective. So this is a trigger that points us. Or just to, say they're all, they're, yeah, they're all yeah, Americans. Indeed, but it's not, and, and is there a day coming when the only people in Jerusalem will be Jews or yes. Israelites or whatever they right. might say? And the answer is no. And the answer is no. So basically what this is saying is this is a kingdom of a different nature. And it's, that's the trigger. We're, we're seeing this is now something else. And, and that's kind of backed up in First Peter 2, 9 and 10. He says, but now in this new kingdom, Peter's talking about Christians here, and he's talking about the church. In First Peter 2, beginning in verse 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, your own spe his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He goes on to say that, you know, you were not a people, now you are a people in, a, in other places. He says you're, this, this new kingdom or this new temple is made up of what? Living stones in another place. This is the church. These are the people that know the Lord, and the Lord knows them. And I think you, you and I both made a point last time that not everybody that comes through those front doors of the church is part of that kingdom nor do we want them to be. 
And so basically there are conditions that God sets for that. And, and at some point in the future, I want to talk about those. But these are things that key us to the way that we should be looking at these messianic prophecies. And one of the other ones that I started with, Mike, but I think we got the, uh, the phone call, was Isaiah 11. And this is kind of long, but I think it's a necessary reading so that we understand what's in it. It's Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 11. He says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. So who is that, Mike? That's Christ. That's, Jesus. That's Christ. That's Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Now, isn't that something similar to what Jesus read when he read Isaiah uh, in the in the synagogue the day he started his ministry? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Basically, here's a key. You know, here, here's something Jesus said this of himself. So we should be able to relate these. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the, the poor. And we could chase a rabbit there about judging all day long. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. There's our equal before the law, equal before God. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, and he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness see the belt shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. There are concepts of the church right there in Isaiah laid out for us that Jesus spoke of in his own ministry. And, and we see. And then in verse 6, here's one that I want to take note of. The wolf shall also dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, and their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the nursing child shall play at the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand a second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt. Now, those three verses, are, are those five verses, are just full of things, Mike, that we could spend a whole show talking about. Uh, that the earth shall be full of knowledge. At the time this was written, I don't think the earth was full of knowledge of the Lord. But what do you think about today, Mike? Yeah. Pretty, pretty well full. Uh, he says, and here's something that we should take note of. He says, for the Gentiles shall seek him, talking about the banner, talking about the root of Jesse, talking about Christ. There's a trigger right there. That he's talking about something other than that physical kingdom. When he says, for the Gentiles shall seek him, or for the Gentiles shall come to Mount Zion, or the Gentiles will be brought into the kingdom. There are different phrases used for it in different places, but when you see that idea, that should trigger you to think of the church. And, his, and, and he says even in 11 that the Lord shall set his hand a second time. This is, this is an amazing prophecy of Isaiah. Because guess what? They hadn't even gone into captivity in Babylon the first time to return yet. 
And now he's saying, a second time I'm going to recover my people, talking about bringing them into the church under Christ. So these are all things that key us to what these, these passages are, that they're about the church and about the Messiah and what he's going to do. And we know that it's a contradiction for the wolf to dwell with the lamb, the cow and the bear to graze. Uh, all of these things are contradictions. I, I guess I guess the premillennialists have an explanation for this, as you mentioned earlier, Mike. But there's another passage that that can't explain. In Isaiah 35, verses 8 through 10, here's another passage talking about the same kind of characteristics that we said in Jeremiah 31, 31. A highway shall be there and a road, and it shall be called the holiness, called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. In other words, this highway will not have any unclean people in it. It shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, though a fool, shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast go on it. And it shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. Who are the redeemed? We are the redeemed, redeemed by Christ. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing at with everlasting joy on their heads and they shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away we sing a song about no more tears there's that idea right there in in verse 10 again but here again is a picture of the church now here's the contradiction are there going to be wolves lying down with lambs or are there going to be no wild beasts at all here, here's the major trigger to me, Mike. This says this has to be. This, there is no other way to look at these passages, to harmonize them, that this is symbolic. And that we're talking about something that is not earthly because it's, while, it, while it's using earthly words to symbolize situations that are not earthly. It is, I have a hard time making it any clearer in my own words than that, but, but maybe you can. Okay, I'll... Go ahead. <laughs> no, but but basically, these are the kind of triggers that we should be looking for when we see apparent contradictions. When we take things literally, that is a strong indication that we are to look for the symbolic application in these passages. And and I, I urge you to read all of Isaiah from like chapter thirty-two on down to understand the the messianic nature of this passage. So these are some of the things that I really wanted us to uh, to try to understand and pick up out of this. And these are Old Testament passages referring to the character of the church. You know, uh, the things you're you're getting at here, Gary, are, uh, is that they've been they've been formulated in different ways over the years. Um and understanding figurative language or prophetic language, not all prophecy is figurative. When he says they're going to be in captivity for 70 years, that he's very specific that that is going to be 70 years. But also we can see where that happened and how well, that's that specific what, yes. amount was. And there's other things where he says it's a day for a year and things like this, so you you right. recognize But it's just a matter of reading it. But uh, a guy named D.R. D. Dungan, early in the 20th century, late 1800s, early 20th century, wrote a book on hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is a fancy word for the study of interpretation or the science of interpreting language. 
So we call it hermeneutics from the Greek. So it sounds fancier when you have a course in hermeneutics yeah. and a course in interpretation. But any in any event. But one of one of the ones I use is another one that's a good is Milton S. Terry. Yes, and that's yeah. a little newer book. That's right. But he I have these in my. I was kind of looking this up while you were talking. That he has some rules about this that he stated, and I don't get all of them. I can't. I can't give you this morning a scripture for all of, to ex- illustrate all of these, but they all do make sense, and they're parallel, or they run some of them are, are what you're saying. Number one, the sense of the context will indicate if a passage is figurative. So, when you're dealing with um, Zechariah and the val—I mean Ezekiel in the Valley of Dead Bones, right—or when Jesus says, "I'm the good shepherd," or "I am the vine." Or, you or, know or, by looking at it that the context the is figurative. Yes, he's using, obviously, metaphors and things like that. Uh, when the literal meaning of a passage involves an impossibility, not just a miracle, but an impossibility, such as Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. Now, how can the first dead there be the literal dead burying other literal, literal dead? dead? Obviously, when he says, let the dead bear the dead, the first dead that are supposed to be doing the burying, Jesus is saying, let those who are spiritually dead bury the bury literally. those literal dead, and you come follow me. That's the context of it, right? So so you see that the literal meaning involves an impossibility. And so we do this all the time. We know this in our instinctive use of English, whatever language you speak. When we're hearing it, we generally know. And sometimes there's a little bit of ambiguity, and so we usually ask for clarification. What do you mean? You know, when we say get the lead out, tell your teenager, get the lead out, we, we don't have him stop and have him look at his body for lead. We're using a metaphor, right? And, and so, that's, that's one of the most difficult things I understand for people that are not basically English-speaking people to understand those kind of expressions. Yes, they have them in their own language, but they're right. not the exactly the same. Right. But, but, and then you have uh, when the literal meaning makes a contradiction of one passage in another passage. Okay, Ecclesiastes 9.5 says, the dead know nothing. And then Matthew 25 says, the dead will enter into eternal life. So it's obvious the dead there is speaking of only a particular kind of deadness or a particular aspect of being dead in Ecclesiastes 9. That the dead know nothing with respect to the earth. Right. Not that they don't know ever. Not that they don't ever know anything at all. You see. Well, I think there's another passage where Jesus says the dead will hear my voice and live, and in another passage he says the dead are going to come forth from the graves. Right. So he's so obviously he's speaking of different kinds spiritual of deadness and liter- and physical deadness. deadness. Uh, when the script, when two scriptures are made to demand actions that are wrong or forbid those actions which are right and good from other places, I don't have a good example of that off the top of my head. But you, you, you see, what you're, it's the kind of thing you're talking about where there's inherent contradiction Diction. there. Not just the understanding and application of the verse, understanding it's a, that it's a physical thing. Well, when we were, you've heard this passage all your life about um, uh, that Jesus said it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, they question him about this, and yet he goes on to basically say in the same passage that the rich can be saved. With God, all things are possible. Well, we were in Jerusalem uh, in, in early in the year, Judy and I were, and, and some other members of the church here, and, 
And so the guide, who is really good, good at this thing, he points to this gate in the city of Jerusalem, within the city. And I forgot exactly where it was. It's, it's, it's not a famous gate. And you have two openings there. One is very big, but he says generally they might keep that, that one shut at certain times of the year, certain times of the day for security. Next to it, you have what we would call a man door. A regular sized door, only a little smaller than that, even. Right. That they might, they would keep open all the time. In other words, one person can go through that if they hunch down and go in. A, an army can't go through it, you know. Nor can you have an invasion or a bunch of thieves come in. So he says this is what some people say. The eye of the it was called by some people. He said the eye of the needle. I've never, I don't know much historical very verification of that, but. I just think Jesus was being metaphorical and humorous that a camel can't go through the eye of a needle. And that's how hard it is for somebody who loves money to get to heaven. Or, not or just ba- the rich, but those who love money would be in a place. Or basically that it's not impossible for the camel to get through there, but very, very difficult. Very difficult. So so he's saying you have to then look at um, th- this kind of thing. Now, also, another one was when it's stated to be figurative. In John 8, 2, 18... Jesus says, if you destroy this temple, I'll build it up again in three days. And they couldn't understand that. And John makes the comment that he was speaking of his body. So John tells you there speaking that he, of his death, the temple was the body. He was using it as a metaphor. It was figurative language. And John tells the people hearing it, some of them, because they didn't want to believe him in the first place. They wouldn't understand that until it actually happened. You see, that's when they could understand that prophecy. But that's where a lot of prophecies are. Uh, And then when the definite is put for the indefinite, I'll have a good example of that. When it's said in mockery, um, you know, that a lot of things are said in mockery in the Bible, satire, mockery, things like that. And then sometimes common sense. Now, that's a hard one because common sense varies from person to person. But when you read certain passages, you can see, um, well, for example, in in Matthew 20 verse 22 Jesus said to the disciples you do not when they said we want to sit on your right hand and on your left and he said you don't know what you're asking are you able to drink the cup I'm about to be baptized with about to drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm about to be baptized with and they said we're able now they didn't understand maybe the drinking of the cup and the baptism to be figures of speech for actual events, drinking the cup of sorrow and suffering that he would, and being baptized with suffering. And so they didn't understand that he was making an application, whereas we can see common sense what it should have told him. So those are some of the rules. Um, Well, there's another one like that, uh, Mike, that I'd just like to mention that that kind of bears on our interpretation of Scripture when we read about the cities of Jerusalem, and that's, that's Hebrews 12, beginning about verse 18. Where that kind of symbolism and that kind of nature is explained in the Hebrew letter. He says, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to the blackness and darkness of tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the words should not be spoken to them anymore for they could not endure what was commanded and if so as much as a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. 
But you have come to the Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of a of the new of the new covenant, and the blood and the sprinkling of that speaks better than things of Abel. See, he that they, they explain the symbols and in in relationships right there in those two paragraphs between the old and the new. And and that's exactly what you were talking about. It's it sometimes it's explained for us, and, and but we need to apply that explanation when we see some of these other triggers. And there are other rules in grammar or in liter- literary interpretation which are not. And and he, what I'm trying to what I meant to say about this, Gary, is that these rules are not specific to the Bible. They're specific to any kind of spoken or written language. Uh, and whatever language it may, they're not even specific to English. So these aren't some special rules to understand the Bible. Uh, people that can't understand how the Bible is written here are going to have difficulty with other kinds of literature, or they shouldn't have the same trouble with the Bible. And, and there are other rules for metonymies and metaphors and similes. A simile, for example, is when you say uh, uh, one thing is, is like a metaphor is a representation or a transference or carrying across, declaring that one thing is or represents another. Uh, so all, a simile says all flesh is as grass, as grass. That makes it a simile. Right. It has some characters. Then the metaphor says all flesh is grass. So now so you have to figure out okay, just the, exactly. the characteristics that are in the same there in, the, in what they're speaking of. Many passages in the Bible that people have taken to be one is an is passage or it has the word like there or as in it. Yes. And so and therefore, because it has the word like it becomes a metaphor or a simile, you have to decide which one it is, and then you interpret it differently based on those two things. Right. Exactly. Now I would say that that those kind of things are probably more common in at least in English, in poetry, and some other types of writings that we see, and less common in what we would call a textbook. We wouldn't expect to see as much of that in a textbook or a novel that we read for entertainment as we would in poetry. And yet we see the Bible has its historical parts, it has its poetic parts, it has all of these elements of of literature in it when we look to read it and we have to understand those things so we have to put those things into practice if we really want to understand it properly at least that's my view I do want to apologize to our listeners for my telephone going off I usually shut it off (laughs) before we had the radio show but we're doing something different today so I didn't do that I made the mistake of uh, talking to a salesman about some new flooring for the house and of course not blaming the salesman, but he's following up on that call to make sure that I'm going to buy something from him. <laughs> so that's what happened today. Sorry about that. I apologize. But, uh, you know, I I don't get upset during church if somebody's cell phone goes off because I know it happens to everybody these days. Years ago, it used to be something kind of an anomaly, but um, it's happened to me. It'll happen to somebody else. Just We just try to take care of that, but I forgot to turn it off here for the show. Anyway, waste enough time on that. 
So the thing is about the, these languages, when you're coming, when you have a Bible passage that is giving you trouble understanding it, a lot of times the, the difficulty can be resolved by making, by examining first, is it a metaphor, a simile, is it symbolic or figurative language? That can sometimes lead you to see what the real meaning is. And, of course, with dealing with prophecy, Gary, you see that that's almost always what the problem is. And when you bring it over into the New Covenant, you see, you see the difference here. You see how it, how it works one way to another. Zion or Jerusalem becomes the heavenly Jerusalem. Right. Now you have to go in the New Testament and look at Jerusalem being used in a spiritualized sense, not the literal city. Well, when Christ says that the bread of the new, of the new cup of, of the Lord's Supper is His body, well, now we have to understand what does He mean by body? Is it literally His body, or does He have another metaphor figure in right. mind when He says that? And just and then, but then, you, then you still have to understand what that literally means, or what that really means in practical terms today. Or as I like to say, what would it look like? What does it look like in real terms? You can't just use the idea, well, it's a simile or figurative language to get around the actual meaning. It means something in the Bible. There was something that came up in Bible class on Sunday, a passage of John 16, Jesus is talking, where he says, um, I, I don't, I'm not going to pray for you to my father. And I'm like, I'm look, I told the class, I said, I have to tell you, I, do, I don't know exactly what that means. I don't understand that. Or why it was said. Why in that. it was said. I said, but I know it means something. I'm not telling you to dismiss it, and I'm not going to dismiss it. But for me to ascertain now fully what that means, I can't really, don't have a lot to go on in my own understanding. I need to do some more reading and research and thinking about that. There's plenty of smart people that have read that passage before. Some of them will have good answers to that. There's intellectually satisfying. Others will not. But I can read through them and understand it myself. But I just didn't wasn't able to do that in my preparation for that class. And so you have to you have to be willing to accept that, not say, "Well, I don't understand, so it doesn't mean anything," and dismiss a meaning. I, I don't even believe people say, "Well, you know, this part of the Bible doesn't apply to us today." I don't I don't believe that either, really, in the strictest sense. The whole Bible applies to me. It just applies differently to me today than it did to the Jews living under the covenant that God gave to Abraham, or that means gave to Moses. The what words he spoke to those people at Mount Sinai and the people it was given to, which he says were the people of descendants of Abraham that came up out of Egypt, that's who that law was given to. It meant one thing to them in specific application. But it still means something to me today because Paul tells me in Romans 15 that these things were written written for my learning. Well, he also so tells, I have to figure out what it means for me today to understand that. Well, he also tells Titus in 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 chapter three, verse uh, in our Second Timothy. Pardon me, I misread that. He says, "All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for all good work." What I think what he's saying is there there is value for you in all scripture if you will look for it and try to understand how it applies to you. Yes. And that's the point I'm making. I don't say, well, this passage isn't relevant today or does has no application, doesn't apply to us today. By that sometimes people often mean that the command a particular command to uh 
not so different kinds of crops in your field, but every field had to have the same kind of crop sown in it, they would say that's that doesn't apply to us today. Well, it does and doesn't. It doesn't apply to us in that it was given to the descendants of Abraham at, at Sinai, which covenant was superseded and fulfilled by Christ himself. But the truth of that statement, or the idea that those who are God should be separate, he was teaching you something by that command. So what he was teaching in that command, or the fact that they couldn't wear two kinds of cloth at the same time or in the same garment, that was teaching them purity and holiness and singleness in serving God. That was the point of those commands. Now, we can, we certainly are bound by that principle, and those are illustrations of that principle. Right. The fact that they shouldn't marry a, a Canaanite doesn't mean that we can't marry a Canaanite. It means that we have to understand that Christians should not be, be mingling with those of the world because evil companionships corrupt good morals and so forth, as Paul teaches them in 1 Corinthians. So the principles and the teachings are applicable even if they're figurative or if they're prophetic. The question is how, given we live under the new covenant, as Paul called, as the writer of Hebrews calls the law we live under, Gary, a new covenant. It doesn't right. say it's the old covenant, just extended or expanded. It's a new covenant. As a matter of fact, and new means new in kind, not right. just new in age, new in kind. And, and basically, even the Hebrew writer says that old one is, in fact, passing, passing away. Passing away, obsolete. And, and when I say it means new in kind, I'm not just giving my own, my own thought there. There are two different words for new in Greek. One means new in the sense of uh, a, a new car. And then we have a member of church here who has a new car in the sense it's a new kind of car. It's a Tesla. That's a new kind of car. Sure. Okay, so it's a different kind of new. Of course, when I say I have a new car, I mean it's less than 15 years old or new to me. But <laughs> new, new to me is most We often. see we use that word, but it, there's two different kinds of new in the Bible. And new, the new covenant and a new creature are new kinds of creatures. In fact, one early Christian writer called, and I use this in my sermon about equality, said that there are, uh, the Christians are a new race, he says. We're a new race of men. Paul refers to this in Philippians 3.20. Yes. Give no offense either to Jew nor Gentile, nor to the, um, to the brotherhood. So there's Jew, Gentile, and then there's Christians, a new race of people. Now, so that means a new kind of person has been created by Christ, in Christ. It's not like the old. It's not like the old covenant. We're not, it's not built on the same thing. It's built on the same promise that God gave to Abraham. And that's why Gary and I do not teach you in this program, rightfully so, I believe, to keep the Old Testament covenant as your law. Most of this law has been repeated. The principles have been repeated in the new and given new form and new life by Jesus Christ and his apostles. That's why I would say... But like the command to keep the Sabbath is never repeated in the New Testament. That's why I would say that the precepts are the concepts that are behind the Old Testament law have all been carried over. Well, they've been carried over because they were always there in the first place. Exactly. Okay, but the specific parts of the law uh, that that were symbolic are not carried over. Now, people are going to go through a lot of gymnastics to do this because they want to keep that Sabbath day or they want to keep circumcision 
uh, well, I believe in circumcision. It's called baptism. Okay, in in uh, uh, Philippians chapter three, he says that we've been buried with Christ, and that we've been baptized into uh, bar- baptized into Christ, and we've been circumcised. So we'll get to that. I'll look up that verse in a second. Well, that new type of person is also brought forth in baptism because we've been resurrected as a new creature. A new kind of creature. And a new, not just a new creature, but a new kind of creature. And that's part of, part of what goes on here. I'll change the subject just a little bit, going back to that idea of Jerusalem. I want to go over to Galatians 4 and look at what Paul says. Remember we said there was a heavenly Jerusalem? that he related to the church, Paul says there are actually two. Paul says which things he talks about, but uh, he says, uh, but he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he was of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. Here again, he's telling you specifically these are symbolic things, for these are the two covenants, one from Mount Zion, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar, For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. So he puts physical Jerusalem and the eternal Jerusalem separate in that passage. Separately. And how how is it true literally that Hagar is Sinai? That, That cannot be true literally. A woman cannot be a mountain. Which things are symbolic. He, he's telling you it's symbolic, but he this sometimes it doesn't say, and it's obvious that he's using symbolic or figurative language. I get to figure out what what's the what's the symbolism here? What symbol is being referenced? What what part of the symbol? For example, Gary, we are told that Jesus says, unless you become as a little child, you should, you're not enter the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 18. You mean I have to be petulant and selfish and cry a lot to get the kingdom of heaven? I have to be immature and only concerned about myself, throw temper tantrums. Is that what it means? Well, obviously he's referencing a particular aspect of child of a child that when you look at the context you see is humility and openness. And trust. And trust. Those three, those aspects of ch- being a, a child. I can, I can remember when I so, was a child at the time, I, I never questioned my parents that they would care for me. You were a better child than me. Well, was, not to care for me. That they, that they, I always question my parents, but anyway. But they would, that they would care for me, that they had the best in, intention for me. And for the most part, I listened to them. But when I, I was 17, I was, having good intentions for me wasn't good enough. What, but anyway, you, I was a little different, probably different. But no, I, I never lost that faith yeah. in my parents. Uh, I'll tell you honestly, I never, never lost that faith in my parents. Now I think that's the characteristic he's looking for in children. Yes, yes, it is. That's 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 what he's saying here. So you have to look at what aspects is are like that. Well, and I think it's tragic when pe- when children do not have parents that they can have faith in. That's why the family is so important, and why why the destruction of the family in our society today is so egregious to what's happening to us. I, I can't I can't express in my in in words how concerned I am about that and what I see in this nation from day to day is happening to the family. Oh, yeah. yeah that, that's what's causing so much of the social upheaval. And let me tell you something. Government's not the answer to it. More, more laws and changes. More laws and, and government. And, and, and more restrictions on what people can say or think. It's not the answer to the problem. But uh, you and I are dinosaurs, Gary. 
and uh, going the way of uh, dinosaurs in this nation. And, and the results will be reaping a whirlwind, and we're seeing that. And so, yes, I, I agree. Uh, the, the epidemic of fatherless children, as it were, are essentially fatherless children. And the blame goes to both fathers and mothers and society at large in our premises where we've destroyed the nuclear family. And, and some of the movements that are going around today have it as an express purpose to rid society of the nuclear family, which will do nothing to prevent and help right. criminality and poverty and all those other things that are also exacerbating the problems that we have. Well, anyway, that's another. We, we're way off the track here. Well, I want to I want to talk about one other thing here, and then I, I'm going to be basically done with with what I, you know. We've shown here with Scripture, both both in the Hebrew letter and the Galatian letter, that there are two Jerusalems, have we not? There is the physical Jerusalem, which represents the old law, okay, and there is the heavenly Jerusalem, which represents basically the church. And so, are those two Jerusalems spoken of in the Old Testament? I think they are. And how do you recognize it? How do you recognize whether it's speaking of the old Jerusalem or the new? And I haven't found a 100% way to do that, but I, I have found a guide that I use to question. When I see Jerusalem spoken of in peaceful language, usually exaggerated peaceful language, such as without walls or with old people being free to do anything. In other words, when it's spoken of in peace, that it's, it's actually talking about the heavenly Jerusalem. When it's speaking of Jerusalem that's going to be destroyed and is corrupt, what's it talking about? It's talking about physical Jerusalem. And, and, and that's you, a guide. Now, that, I can't that, say that's, that's every right. way. It's every you place. You look at every passage and see that. But I think you're right about that. We also see, for example, in Ezekiel, when he gives the dimensions of a temple that are 1,500 square miles you know, in size, uh, you know he's not talking about physical Jerusalem. And yet people yes. still... Yet people still or a physical temple. A physical temple. People still think that that's what Palestine is going to be like. And it's not going to happen because that's far bigger than the whole area of Palestine itself. So, and I don't I think to say, oh, well, God's going to perform a miracle. You can always say God's going to do a miracle. That, that's not the point he's making in that passage. You're, you're having to come up with a miracle because you won't refuse to accept that that passage is figurative, speaking of the church. Exactly. You have so much simpler or obvious explanation for what the passage means than to say at some time in the future, Palestine is going to be 1,500 square miles in size and so and so higher than any mountain on the earth today. It, it, you don't have to do that because it's speaking in figurative language about, and, and, and about one, the church. And, yeah, and once you realize about that passage, then there's a line in that passage, and forgive me, Mike, I don't have it. I can't bring it up right now, but essentially it says... The, the prophet is telling the reader to pay special attention to how you come and go into this temple. Yes. Because it's going to change. If I'm not mistaken, about looking up here, I think that's Ezekiel 37, 38, 39, or so right in that area. Uh, you'll see this new temple. And he says, here. pay the attention. New, the new dimensions. Pay here. attention to how you come in and come out. Come in and out. This. And that's, that's what the church is about. Got to pay attention. How you come in and out. Exactly. This is a new body, a new temple. This is something new of a kind and literal, and you better pay attention to what when it says. Paul, when, when Paul tells the Corinthians in two different places, 1 Corinthians 3, he says, you're the temple of God, Christ. Yeah. You're the temple. It's built Who is up the of... you there? How, how can people be a temple? Well, it's obviously 
figurative language. Yeah, you're, and then it, he tells them their body is the temple of the Lord. In First Corinthians, six. and the temple is built of living stone. Living stone. So it's obviously figurative language, and it's he's he's building on the the literal physical temple that was built uh, in Jerusalem as a metaphor for the place where God dwells. So that aspect of a temple there means where God dwells. And that's why you as individual Christians in a church, and a church, are, your body are the temple of God because God dwells in you and God dwells in the church as a whole, as a body. Yes, and so you have this, uh, this problem of interpretation. And you know, Gary, I've mentioned... Just kind of a side point here. I mentioned this passage about this business about circumcision, and I didn't give a clear reference. Let, let me go back and give the reference. Just It's kind of off the subject a little bit, just for our listeners. The passage I was referring to about circumcision is in Colossians chapter 2. Now, we all know that circumcision, as given to Abraham, was a literal physical act of cutting off the foreskin of the male penis as an act of of a, entering into a covenant. The shedding of blood and the removal of the flesh becomes a symbol of entering into a covenant with God. And this, was, this became an everlasting covenant to his descendants. Okay, so that, that meant that the descendants of, of Abraham uh, through Jacob, all those people became Jews or Israel, all practiced this or were supposed to. And it was repeated, even though it was given before the law, says it was it was repeated in the law and so i maintain today that it is part of being in christ to be circumcised not the physical circumcision but the circumcision of the heart now now here and here's the reading of that here's why i say that colossians chapter 3 and verse 10 beginning you are complete in him speaking of christ who is the head of all principality and power in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So here he links up circumcision not of hands but of the heart and he links it to baptism. So all people who have come into Christ and put off the deeds of the flesh, becoming a Christian by being baptized into Christ, burying the old man, he said, same writer Paul said in Romans 6, have in this passage said to have been circumcised in Christ. So I consider myself a Jew, a Hebrew, a Jew, Israel, because of this passages in the book of Romans that say, that those in Abraham, of Abraham's seed are Israel, and I'm I'm in Abraham I'm Abraham's seed by faith, so I consider myself to be the true new Israel, and I've been circumcised with baptism as an part of the everlasting covenant that God made with Abraham, not the one He made with Moses, but the one that He made with Abraham to circumcise him to put off the flesh. So when you're baptized, you put off the flesh, meaning you put away the sinful deeds of the body. You put away your sinful desires. It's a process that begins at baptism. You put away your sinful desires, which is the flesh, and you become Christ alone. And so baptism then is what, it, bearing bear with ba and baptism is this circumcision. So there's a case where 
the literal circumcision of the old is brought over to the new, not as physical circumcision of male babies, but of baptism of adult believers, putting off the flesh. Now, you, you, what do you think about that, Gary? You think that's no? That's exactly, I think, what he's trying to say. And 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 you mentioned that we are now, we are now Jews, in the sense I think. You know, I read from Galatians 4, but I'm going to go down to verse 28 now. He says, basically, he says, if, you know, that bondwoman, Hagar, represented the Jerusalem which now is and is in bondage with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. He goes on in verse 28 to say, now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit even so it is now nevertheless what does the scripture say cast out the bondwoman and her son for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman so then brethren we are not children of bondwoman but of free right we we are the jews we are the jews now well you you see this passage that paul applies this same principle and uh in Romans chapter 2 that I referenced, very similar to what you're saying from Galatians. He's speaking here in Romans, the early part of Romans, he's trying to tell them that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which he comes to later in chapter 3. Chapter 1, he's condemned the Gentiles for their sinfulness and wickedness. In chapter 2, he is speaking to the Jews who had the law but did not keep it. And so he said, now, but, but really he's speaking now to Christians. Now listen to what he says. Therefore, if an uncircumcised, Romans 2.26, I didn't give you the verse, okay. Romans 2.26. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will he not, not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Now, that wasn't true under the law of Moses, that if a Gentile, that in Israel, to be a Jew, that you could just keep the law without being circumcised. You couldn't even keep the law without being circumcised because you couldn't go to the temple and offer well, sacrifices. It was part of the law. And will not the physically uncircumcised, he goes on to say, if he, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. So he says here you've got literal, literally, literal circumcised Jewish Christians who won't keep the law. They're going to be judged by this uncircumcised Gentile who is fulfilling the law. This, has, this can only be true in Christ. And he goes on to say this, though, for he is not a he. For he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not of the letter, whose praise is not from men but from God. So he says, who is a Jew today in the, in the church? The one who is inwardly circumcised, who has cut off the deeds of the flesh, and been baptized into Christ. That's the Jew. One that's, that's circum But that's a circumcision, but it's of the heart. Right. So there's this Old Testament circumcision brought from a physical act to a spiritual act. And this is true of the old law. This is why I would say it isn't that Jesus came to uh, condemn the law or abolish it in the sense of take it completely, make it as if it were worthless. He is he simply fulfilling the law. This is the fulfillment, the true fulfillment of the covenant God gave with Abraham. And expands its application in many ways. Well, yeah. The thing that's obvious about Old Testament circumcision is it was meant to be a symbol of the covenant with Abraham, but it was only performed on males. 
It could, could only be performed on males, at least in the way that the Jews kept this circumcision. And yet in the New Covenant, which is a spiritual covenant, this circumcision of baptism is available to males and females, isn't it? Regardless of race. Regardless of race or anything else, it's available to all humans. And that is the fulfillment of what began as a symbol in the Old Testament. And that's why to go back to keep the Old Testament law as if it's the real thing, as if it's the main event, is a tragic mistake. And we're warned over and over in the New Testament about this. Now, I, I would expect that many of our readers are probably, or listeners, I should say, Gary, are, are um, not happy about what we're saying right now. And if so, I'd invite you to give us a text, send us a text. Uh, we are able to answer, take a call today. But uh, just before I forget, you can reach us by text at 772 260-6120 or 772-260-6220. You can text us today or anytime this week and we'll try to get a hold of you. You can even text us during the show. That's fine. Next week we'll, we'll be back on the air live and I'll give you those number, if, numbers. If you'd like to write an email, send it to justchristians at att.net. Justchristians at att.net. And I'm going to give you one more contact. Since we have got a couple letters recently, which I really appreciate, good letters. We need to respond to some of those, though, and, and because I think there's some good points in them. But you can send a letter to the church here at Church of Christ, 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard. 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard, Port St. Lucie, 34953. Now, if you can't remember all that, just go to wearejustchristians.com. Go to the website. Go to the website, wearejustchristians.com, if you have access, or get one of your great-grandchildren to go at, go get it for you. <laughs> wearejustchristians.com, and it'll have the contact info there where, where we physically meet. Just mail us a letter if you want to. We'd be glad to uh, to talk with you, text you. And By the way, you can even call those numbers I gave you. They're, they're both telephone numbers. So we'd be glad to converse with you about these things or anything else that's on your mind. Now, Gary, we've got a minute, minute and a half to well, wrap this up. I think that's what we were saying when we, when, when Paul, I think the Apostle Paul says, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither male nor female, there is neither slave nor free, but we are all one in Christ. That's, what he, that's the expansion of the application that I had in mind when I made that, made that phrase. Right, and that's the fulfillment of the law, too. Because the law of Moses was only available to the descendants of Abraham or people who intentionally became proselytes of Abraham and were circumcised, or proselytes of, of, of uh, Moses and were circumcised. That law did not even apply to the Gentiles. It was never given to the Gentiles. But the law of Christ is available to all men, bond or free, Jew or Gentile. Uh, uh, he mentioned Scythian and barbarian. All the male or female, female, there's no distinction being made. That's the diff, one of the differences. That's one of the main differences between the law of Moses and the law of Christ as it's given. Well, Mike, I've got us down to one minute. We've got 30 seconds left. So let me wrap this up. I appreciate your input today, Gary, in this topic. Let me wrap this up by saying thank you for listening to the show today. We are just Christians. We hope you can tune in again next week. We'd be glad to hear your comments and questions. Hope you'll come and visit us at the church building at 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard. We meet today at 10 and 11, and we'll, each week at that time, we'll expand our services later. Come and see us, 
And may God bless you this week. Thank you very much.